Well, um, I'll just read the scripture here while you're still standing. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Well, we began last time to look at this subject of idolatry, a subject that most modern people think does not apply to them. When they hear that word, they go off into something from the past. But as we pointed out last time, idolatry is still a very relevant subject and still practiced by, I would say, most people. And it is certainly something that Christians need to be careful about, allowing false concepts of God to come into our lives. That's always an issue for each one of us. Those things are pressing in all the time, so we need to be careful about this. We must keep ourselves from idols, especially the idols that uh, Ezekiel spoke of in relationship to idols of the heart. We looked at that last time, that verse in Ezekiel. So, uh, let me just give you a couple thoughts here to uh, refresh your memories. A.W. Tozer said, The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. Having in our mind thoughts about God that are unworthy of Him. So idolatry could be defined as giving yourself to a person, idea, or thing that displaces God as central in your life. Something that takes up too much of your life other than God. Something central in your life other than God. The substituting of any created thing for the Creator. That's another way of thinking about idolatry, the substituting of any created thing for the Creator. So last time we considered this idol of nature. It's one of the most uh, predominant idols, I think, of modern educated mankind. The idea that nature is all there is, that the creation, well, they wouldn't call it that because that implies a Creator, but that nature is all there is. Though some people would never think about worshiping the gods, uh, nature god like the sun or the moon or the stars, they actually end up making nature as a whole their god. Because they look at nature as ultimate reality. That's all there is. As such, they give nature godlike attributes. Nature becomes sovereign over all, and the forces of nature are glorified. Nature as some scientists would tell us today, brings itself into existence, originates life, and brings about human personality. But these things, existence and life and personality, actually show forth the eternal power and supernatural character of God, not the power of nature. What we call nature is simply God at work in his world. The laws of nature are simply the way God normally runs his creation. Not something off there on their own. It's just how God normally operates in his creation. God is not the God of the gaps. He's the God of the whole show. Maybe you've, if you are in college now, you may have heard this idea of the God of the gaps. That's the idea that 
well, in the past, you know, people couldn't explain why things worked the way they do, so they just said, well, that's God. And so whatever gap in knowledge they had was filled in with God. But now we don't need to do that, see, because we know so much more. And we see that nature can explain everything, so there's no need to have this God of the gaps. But that's never the way Christians looked at God anyway. God's in charge of everything, not just what we can't explain. So, this idea of, of nature becoming all and an all-encompassing uh, way of viewing life is, is an idol. Naturalism is one form of modern idolatry. It's exchanging the truth of God for a lie. It's worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. So it is an example of what Paul talks about there in Romans 1, people professing themselves to be wise who actually are foolish in what they're saying. They've embraced an idol. Today I would like to look at two more very prominent idols of the heart. Covetousness and greed. Covetousness and greed. And they are very close together, very close to one another. That's why I uh, speak on both of them. I almost use them interchangeable, although they're not quite interchangeable. Covetousness is an inordinate desire to have what someone else has. Too much of a desire to have what someone else, an inordinate desire to have what someone else has. It means to fix our desire upon, to long for, or to lust after something someone else has. That's covetousness. Greed is the obsession with accumulating material goods, an excessive desire for more of something, usually money, uh, than what we need. That's greed. An excessive desire for more of something than what we need. So you see that covetousness and greed are very similar. One person calls these the idols of stuff. I thought that was a pretty good way of, of bringing it home. The idols of stuff. But it may not just be material possessions. The last of the Ten Commandments says... You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So it goes off into all kinds of areas. We're talking here about an inward hard attitude. Coveting always first involves an inward lack of love toward God and others. And I think that's what Paul saw. This was the commandment, you know. He tells this in Romans. This was the commandment that God used to show Paul his sinfulness, this thing of coveting. Let's look at this in Romans chapter 7. We'll, we'll just read part of this uh, section here because um, it's too long to spend or to read all of it, but Romans 7 and beginning with verse 7. He's talking about the law here. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? 
May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. So he's saying the law has shown me my sinfulness. And then he, he says specifically what part of the law it was. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, that commandment of not coveting, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, that is, this commandment of covenant, when it came to me, really when I saw what it was saying, sin became alive, and I died. In other words, he saw his sinfulness. Because this commandment clearly deals with inner attitude, you see. It's dealing with something down on the heart level. Paul saw that. He saw that this goes right down to that level in my life. I think Paul came to see that he could not control his inappropriate desires. When this commandment came home to his heart, he said, I died. I knew I was done for as far as pleasing God. In other words, he saw his sinfulness. It's not just that he saw some sin in his life. He saw how sinful he was deep down in his heart. God used this commandment of coveting because it deals with an inward attitude, you see. He saw that he was sinful down on the heart level. You know, I don't know what specifically came to Paul's mind in this area of coveting. Uh, it may have been something related to his his uh, position as a, a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews and a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. You know, being uh, esteemed with this high position and recognition. You know, said I advanced uh, beyond my countrymen. Well, he, you know, that idea of being thought of as being a great Pharisee, you know. could have been something like that. But whatever it was, he saw that it was evil. And God used that. And he says, uh, once he began to see that, it produced in him coveting of every kind. He saw that I, I had coveting in all kinds of areas. Whatever it was that initially brought it to his mind, you know, came home to his heart, he began to see this thing goes out into all kinds of areas. So later on in, the, in his New Testament letters, Paul shows that coveting, covetousness and greed are forms of idolatry. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, he says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So he says, a covetous man who is an idolater. He sees that this... This has to do with something that uh, was spoken of over and over in the Old Testament, this thing of idolatry. But covetousness is idolatry. And then he says this in Colossians 3.5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So greed is idolatry. And he says, for on account of these things, the wrath of God will come. So this thing of, of covetousness and, and greed are very serious. He's saying it's idolatry, 
And it's on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Greed and covetousness are things that Jesus spoke about often. Yet, almost no one thinks they're guilty of these sins. I have a book uh, at home that Brother McLeod gave me, Keith McLeod gave me, and the title of the book is Covetousness, The Sin Very Few Ever Confess. You see, it's always somebody else that's like this. It's usually some rich person. That's who we're thinking about. Well, covetousness and greed, well, that's, that's some corporate executive. Uh, someone with a lot of, some rich person. Actually, we can become covetous whether we have little or much or anything in between. Any person can be covetousness, no matter what their status or, or um, their bank account's like. Because covetousness is an issue of the heart, not of outward circumstances. It, it involves a heart that's divided between two gods. And we'll see that here in a minute as we look at Jesus' teaching on this. It's idolatry. Another problem with dealing with this sin is that we think other issues are much more important. We kind of put this down the scale quite a ways, especially in America. I mean, lying and murder and sexual sin, those things are important. But covetousness, well, we just don't put that up there on the same level. But the fact is that Jesus spoke about our attitude concerning money and possessions more than he did about anything else. That's something to think about. Howard Dayton, he's got a Christian financial program on the radio. He says this, In the Gospels, an amazing one out of ten verses deal directly with the subject of money. One out of ten verses. And he goes on to say the Bible offers 500 verses on prayer and around 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. I didn't try to check that out. <laughs> but it sounds about right when you think about all the things that are taught in the Bible concerning money and possessions. Another Christian writer, Samuel Chadwick, said, The love of money is a greater curse to the church than the aggregate of all other evils in the world. Now, again, I don't know how you'd figure that out. It may, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement. But I think it's true that the way we use money in our possessions is very important to God, and it is an indicator of our walk with the Lord. Jesus spoke of the deceitfulness of riches. And he also said that we need to beware and be on our guard against every form of greed. So there's deceitfulness in riches, and greed comes in lots of forms. We're dealing with a subtle subject here sometimes. And the fact is that our materialistic culture clouds our vision. I mean, we are surrounded by materialism, by greed. 
by covetousness. Our society is pretty much geared toward greed and covetousness. Even much of the advertising attempts to make you discontented with what you have so you'll buy some new gadget or want the latest style or something. So we are surrounded by various forms of greed, and it's not always as obvious as the extravagant salary of some corporate executive. Let me just name a few forms of greed that are perhaps more relevant for our situation. We don't have too many corporate executives in our midst. An attitude of envy is a form of covetousness and greed. Envy is discontentment at or resentment of another's success or good fortune. Resentment for another's success. Now Francis Schaeffer said this, and I thought this was pretty perceptive. He said, we should love man enough not to envy. We should love people enough not to envy. And this is not only envy for money. It is for everything. There is a simple test for this. Natural desires. Now that, he's saying there's a place for having natural desires for things. But he says, natural desires have become coveting against a fellow man when we have a mentality that would give us secret satisfaction at his misfortune. So you're, you're saying you're crossing over the line from just a normal desire here to something that's coveting, that's wrong, that's envious. If we have a secret satisfaction at his misfortune. If a man has something and he loses it, do we have an inward pleasure, a secret satisfaction at this loss? And Schaefer says, do not too quickly, do not speak too quickly and say, never, it's never so, because you will make yourself a liar. Saying this is a very common attitude, this thing of envy, which is a form of coveting. If this mentality is upon me in any way, then my natural desire has become coveting. I am inwardly coveting and I am not loving the man as I should. So that's the end of the quote from Schaefer. But, you know, when you think about it, if a, if a person has been successful in a way that pleases God, we should admire that person, not envy that person. I'm talking about in a way that pleases God. <clears throat> so, we're talking about different forms of greed and coveting here. Closely aligned with this attitude is another attitude, this attitude of envy is another attitude, and that's the attitude of entitlement. The idea that someone else, society, the government, or someone with more, should provide for me. Instead of taking the attitude, I know that I need to work hard in order to provide for myself, the greedy person just wants to get something from someone else, something that someone else has. The person that is greedy will either demonize or idolize the successful person who has money and possessions. You know, you're either going to demonize them, saying, oh, those people are all rotten, cutthroats, and 
bad people, or you idolize them. Boy, I'd sure like to be like that. You know, I wish I had all that. Either way is wrong, and it's a manifestation of greed. The greedy person, in many cases, wants something for nothing. And I can't help but think that buying lottery tickets is just a form of greed, because what you're wanting is something for nothing. Another form of greed involves kicking the can down the road. That is, accumulating debt for the future, a future gen, uh, generation so that we can live the way we want to now. Uh, figuring, you know, somebody else will pay for it later. The government's really good at this. I mean, it's so good at it that it's run up an $18 trillion debt. Somebody's going to have to pay that, but we'll just keep on now because we're happy with what we can get right now. So, just looking at different forms of greed. Greed is also seen in the desire for instantaneous gratification. We're pretty bad about that in America. Everything's got to be now. I want it, and I want it now. Being impatient about something we want. So, we overspend on things we don't need and use credit to avoid having to wait for it because we want the stuff now. Another form of greed would be hoarding, hoarding things. Usually the hoarder is insecure about the future and thinks he must hoard his money or possessions so he'll have, have something in the future. A hoarding, storing up things. Greed might be an inward desire just to keep what we have for ourselves, even when we have more than we need and we see that there's others that need help around us. Just not considering others, holding on to what we have at all costs. I read that only 25% of the garages in U.S. homes are used to park cars. You know why? Because they're full, so full of stuff that you can't get your car in anymore. Something's wrong there. Now, it may not always be the case. I mean, I'm not trying to make you go home and clean your garage out. <laughs> but, you know, when when it's... That many garages, you can't get cars in. Only 25% of people can park their cars in their garage. There's probably a problem in America. Greed can come in the form of a lack of gratitude for what God has provided. Not being content. That's just a form of greed. So, in one way or another, greed is looking to the creation for satisfaction and meaning in life. So greed is idolatry. In the Old Testament, often the idols were made of silver and gold. In the New Testament, the warnings against idolatry have to do with silver and gold themselves, money and possessions, what Jesus called mammon. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. 
This is the Sermon on the Mount, and right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wherever your treasure is, your heart's going to go there. Then he talks about the eye. You're either going to have a clear eye or a bad eye. Why would he bring that up in the midst of this thing about uh, mammon and, and treasure? Well, because your money affects how you see things. And then he says this, verse 24, you can't, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's absolute, Jesus says, it's not possible to serve God and mammon. Like all other idolatries, this one seeks to find ultimate meaning in an aspect of creation rather than the creator, in mammon. The real goal in life is to have more mammon. More of the creation, not to get closer to the Creator. That's the attitude he's dealing with here. The term mammon seems to be a sort of personification of wealth and riches and possessions. It's not that these things are wrong in themselves, but if we are preoccupied with them, if they dominate our life, if we're mastered by them, then they're an idol. And I do want to make an important point here, so I think we have to keep this clear in our minds. The kind of idolatry we're speaking of here often has to do with making a good thing the ultimate thing. It's not wrong to want certain things. We need some money and we need some possessions. But the intensity of desire is what makes an attitude, this attitude sinful. John Calvin put it this way, Evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. See, at a certain point, a legitimate desire, need for some money, need for some possessions and things, at a certain point, a legitimate desire can become an idol. When does a proper desire become coveting? One Christian writer put it this way, Desire becomes sin when it fails to include love of God and man. Further, I think there are two practical tests as to when we are coveting against God and man. First, I am to love God enough to be contented. If you're not contented, you're over in this other realm. I am to love God enough to be contented Second, I am to love man enough not to envy.
So, this is how God wants us to understand this thing of mammon. Riches have become too big, too important, and end in themselves. It's kind of similar to what the writer of Ecclesiastes says concerning the view that man has under the sun. This is the way that man thinks. He says, he puts it just in a nutshell. Money is the answer to everything. If I just had the money, then I'd be content. Then I'd be happy. Then I'd have peace. Then I'd have joy. That person that believes that has been blinded by mammon. This is what Jesus is saying here. That, that kind of attitude will blind you to reality. I thought I'd just use this illustration. I've used it before, but this is for the children, what we're talking about here. Jesus is saying that the wrong attitude towards money will blind a person. So, here's some money, okay? Oops. Here's some money. Now, if I have the right attitude toward money, I can see you just fine. I, just, I, I hold the money out here and I see all you children out here. But if I have the wrong attitude toward money, if money's too important to me, if it's too close to my life, you know what? I can't see you. I just can't see things the way I, I should be able to because money's too big to me. It's too important. So we got to be careful for that, to have that wrong attitude toward money. Money should never be like that. It should always be out like this. So you think about that a little bit. If we hold it away from us, us, we can see fine. But if we hold it too close to us, if it's too important to us, we won't see things clearly. And we won't treat people the way we should. Because it's an idol then. Mammon is an idol, a false god that will entice you away from serving the true and living God and, for lo and from loving people the way you should. So Jesus is saying in this portion here in Sermon on the Mount that we're either going to serve the true God or the false God, a false God mammon. Money is a rival God, in other words. That's the way he's presenting it here, as mammon. And it's, it's a, a God capable of... A, of inspiring devotion, giving a false joy and peace, and a false sense of security and power. It's, it's that kind of a God. It can do that. So as we said here this morning, Jesus is telling us we cannot serve God and mammon because they're presenting to us different ways of life. And I want to make that contrast here for you this morning. These two... Uh, the true God and this false God mammon are presenting different ways of life to us. The false God mammon says, desire me. But God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, not money, not possessions. Mammon says, if you had more of me, you'd be satisfied. But God says, 
He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Mammon says, Put your trust in me for security and peace and joy. But God says, Do not trust in the uncertainty of riches. And he who trusts in riches will fall. And the rich man who trusts in his riches is a fool. Mammon says, Honor those that honor me. In other words, the rich and wealthy should be held in high esteem because of their success and their wealth. But God says, Honor those that honor me. And God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those are the people that we should honor. Mammon says, You can serve God and serve me also. God says you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon says, lay up treasures on earth. God says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So we have two different ways of life presented to us by God and mammon. What about this thing of laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven? Well, Jesus talked about that in another section where he also talks about mammon. And uh, why don't we turn to that? That's Luke chapter 16. How do we lay up treasures in heaven? In Luke chapter 16, we're told how you lay up treasures in heaven. And he starts out in explaining this by giving the parable of the unrighteous steward. So first of all, we have to know what a steward is. A steward is one who manages or takes care of something for someone else. This usually had to do with a house and property. Steward was put in charge of those things to manage those things. He didn't own those things. Another person owned them, but the steward is put in charge of those things to take care of them. So Jesus starts out by talking about an unrighteous steward. He tells us of a steward who squandered the possessions of his master. In other words, the things that he had been put in charge of, he didn't use properly. So he was about to lose his stewardship, to lose his livelihood. So what did this steward do, this unrighteous steward? He acted shrewdly by planning ahead. He summoned each of his master's debtors and let them off with paying a smaller payment so that these people would like him, and when he lost his stewardship, they'd take him in and take care of him. Smart guy. Uh, Of course, Jesus was not saying that we should ever act in an unrighteous manner. But what he was saying is that we need to recognize that we, each one of us, has a stewardship that can be used in ways that will be important in our future. We can actually lay up treasures in heaven through our stewardship that God has given us. So, this stewardship that God's talking about has to do with the mammon of unrighteousness. By this, he means money and possessions. Why did he, why did he call this the mammon of unrighteousness. If this is something God's put in our hands, why did he call it the mammon of unrighteousness? 
Well, I think the reason for that is because most money and possessions are used for selfish motives. If you look all around the world at how money and possessions are used, most of them are used for selfish motives. So it's, in general, you can say these things are the mammon of unrighteousness. But Jesus is saying they don't have to be used that way. If we'll use them for the advancement of the gospel upon the earth, helping people on towards heaven, then we can use them in a way that's pleasing to God. Not in a, then we're using them not in a selfish way. So let's, um, let's read the account here in Luke chapter 16. <clears throat> I won't read the part about the unrighteous steward, but we'll pick up right after that. Luke 16... And verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Who's they? Well, it's the friends you've made. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So this mammon of unrighteousness, these things that God has put us in charge of to, to, to take care of, he says these are very little things. We think of them as such big things, but he says a very little thing. If you have been faithful in the use of that which is another's. Did I skip verse 11? Let's go back to verse 11. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will, grant, who will entrust you the true riches? Who will entrust the true riches to you? So these aren't even... So what he's talking about here, these things that we think are, are riches, he says, these aren't even the true riches. Well, may, this is... These are incredible things that Jesus is saying here in, in terms of our understanding of, of money and possessions. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust, you the, true, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then he says this thing that he said back there in the Sermon on the Mount. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. If we use money and possessions rightly, we can make friends for ourselves. That is, we can bring people to Christ. We can help people on towards heaven. Uh, uh, maybe, you know, that may be using some of our money to buy a tract, buy some tracts that are handed out to people. Uh, maybe using some money for Christian relief work. There's all, it goes off into all kinds of areas related to 
this thing of advancing the gospel, working righteousness in other people's lives, helping them on towards heaven, so that these people in the future who have been affected in a positive way by our use of money and possessions will welcome us into the eternal dwellings, as he puts it in this account. Welcome us into the eternal dwellings. Now, I want to try to bring this home to us because the main thing to note from this account is the totally different way of viewing money and possessions. They are a stewardship from God, something that God has entrusted to us. They are not our own. He owns them. He's He's given them to us temporarily to take care of, to manage. Our stewardship. He's basically he's saying, here's something that most people use selfishly, but I'm entrusting them to you to you to use differently. To use them for my glory, for the good of others, and for your own well being. Use them to advance my kingdom in your life and the lives of others. What money and possessions we have belong to God. He's the master. He's the creator of these things. And he has entrusted them to us. We must be faithful in that which belongs to him. I like the way it's put in verse 12. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. See, it's another's. What we have is not our our own. It's another's. It's God's. He's He's the one that owns it. If we really believe this, it radically changes how we view money and possessions. The basic question becomes, not how much of our money should we give to God, but how much of God's money should we keep for ourselves? Totally different way of viewing things, you see. Not, you know, how much should I, of my stuff should I give to God? But how much of his stuff, which he's letting me use, should I keep for myself? Not how much can we put in the bank here, but how much can we deposit in heaven? In other words, we should be looking for opportunities to use temporal things for eternal good. Material things for spiritual good. So, we need to beware of this rival God, mammon. Jesus is saying money in itself is not evil, but it sure is dangerous. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because it can become an idol. It can become a rival god. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. So we need to guard ourselves from these ever-present idols of the heart. In closing, then, I want to emphasize something that 
is hard to get across, but I want to try to do it. And that is, we should not be taking this, what I'm saying here today, as a teaching on trying to live a more moral life. I, I mean, I, I hope you don't go away from this meeting thinking, well, I shouldn't be covetous and greedy. Because you already knew that when you came in. And it was no revelation. In fact, most of the religions of the world would hold to that basic teaching. Teaching about and even living outwardly moral lives is possible by some self-effort, but that's not Christianity. Just striving to not be covetous. That's not Christianity. That's what Paul was doing before he was converted. The value of seeing our covetousness and greed is that it shows us our need of Christ and our continual need of Christ. Christianity is Christ. Seeing Him and walking in His Spirit, that's how we keep ourselves from idols. You don't keep yourselves from idols. You look to God. Man can teach morality, but only God can produce godliness. This is something I've seen over the years in my efforts to try to teach and preach. It is so much easier to teach morality than it is to preach Christ. Virtually anybody can preach morality. Nobody can preach Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. Here's a saying by John Newton. I thought it fit in here. He said, I find that to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and life is by far the hardest part of my calling. It seems easier to deny self in a thousand instances of outward conduct. So I, I can deal with this thing of denying self and all this outward conduct, you know, exterior morality. I can do that, but he says, to keep my eyes simply on Christ as my peace and life, that's by far the hardest thing of my calling. So, what I'm saying here today is not about moral resolutions or strict self-effort in these areas that we're looking at of covetousness and greed. We overcome idolatry by seeing the beauty and excellency of Christ. When that happens, we see something far more attractive than mammon. You might say it this way, the majesty of Christ breaks the tyranny of things. Breaks the bondage that mammon can have. Mammon is a cruel master, but and it'll hold you in bondage. It's the, it's the greatest slaveholder in the world, mammon is. 
but the majesty of Christ, seeing something of Christ, can break the tyranny of things. In seeing Him, we'll turn away from lesser gods to follow the true and living God as revealed to us in Christ. Here's what Paul said in Philippians. He said, I count all things to be lost, all things to be lost, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's what did it for Paul, the surpassing value of Christ. And then he said it, he said it this way, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? I can do all things in Him who strengthens me, or through Him. But the literal there is in Him. I can do all things in Him who strengthens me. That's how Paul dealt with this area of covetousness that convicted him of his sinfulness. He kept himself from the idol of covetousness by trusting in Christ. That's the only way we can deal with this. The only way. Not, we're not talking about moral resolutions here and trying harder. So don't go off from this time on some moral reformation in this area. That's not what I'm trying to get you to do at all. What I'm trying to say that we all need to do is seek Christ. Seek to know Him better and to recognize the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith in Him. As we see more of Him and what He's done for us, our lives can and will be filled with contentment, thankfulness, and generosity. Those things are just the opposite of what we're talking about here when we're talking about covetousness and greed. Contentment, thankfulness, and generosity.